Well, welcome to our Good Friday service here at Sailorville. We're so very glad that you're here. If you're just coming in, we would invite you to find a seat. Uh, it seems a little strange to call it Good Friday, doesn't it? It seems strange to uh, call something good of the night that our, the day that our Savior uh, historically died. But because as Christians, we come together and uh, we know what the end of the story holds. And so we don't have to pretend like we don't know how everything's going to end, but the scriptures do tell us that it's good to reflect, to remember, and to think on, and to glory in the cross of Christ. So that's our desire tonight as we gather together. We want to lift high Jesus and thank him for his passion and what he's accomplished for us. And we have provided for you there on that uh, order of service. As you can see, there will be following in, th following in three different categories, starting with our own guilt, grace, and gratitude. So we hope that you uh, have a great time of worshiping together as a church body, the Jesus on the cross. Let's stand together. Please have a seat. 
what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul, when talking to the Corinthian church, instructing them about communion, he tells them, before you partake together, examine yourself. We're going to be taking the Lord's table together a little bit later on in this service, but as we work through this stage of our own guilt, let's take a moment and time of prayer and personal reflection. Let's take some time to acknowledge that because of our guilt, Jesus had to die. Because of our sin, he was placed upon the cross. And then take some time to examine your own heart and confess any known sin and come confess it and come into a right fellowship with God again if you do indeed know him. So we'll take just a, a moment here in the quiet of this room and uh, we'll pray together. Uh, pray, for your, pray by yourself at first and then we'll pray together after that. Oh Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a covert in thy appeasing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, thy merits soar above them. Though unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, thy righteousness exalts me to thy throne. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in me plead my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to thy throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear thy voice assuring me that by thy stripes I am healed, that thou wast bruised for my iniquities, that thou hast made sin for me, that I might be righteous in thee, that my grievous sins, my manifold sins are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of thy concealing blood. I am guilty, but pardoned, lost, but saved, wandering, but found, sinning, but cleansed. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep me always clinging to thy cross. Flood me every moment with descending grace. Open to me the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. Amen.
Afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. But as for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief soul makes an offering for 
her guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Life and all his 
precious blood Don't fear your banishment from God Since Jesus sets you free What is often spelled out after someone does an amazing feat or performance, G-O-A-T, I didn't know what that meant. I knew it spelled goat when I first saw it, but I didn't know exactly what it meant, so I had to Google it. I saw it on social media, and I found out through Google that goat stands for, it's an acronym that means greatest of all time. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? To say of someone that they are the greatest of all time, there's a lot of factors that have to play into that to see if that claim is valid, if that claim is indeed true. But to say that about yourself, that you are the greatest of all time, is an even more audacious claim, and you better have a life and performance that backs up your claim if you're going to be so bold to say you're the greatest of all time. Jesus Christ, the greatest, is the name of this series that we're working through. And tonight, we look at Jesus Christ and the greatest act in history. And we'll be looking at four factors that play into this from John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there to John 19. And all these factors piece together, bring us in and show us why the cross of Christ, why Paul says, I will glory and speak only of Christ on the cross, why it indeed is the greatest act of all time. Well, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. 
arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The first, and the first act that makes this the greatest act in history is this is the most selfless act in history. This is the most selfless act in history because Jesus allowed himself to be beaten and mocked, although he was not guilty. Over and over again, Pilate declares Jesus's innocence, that he has done absolutely nothing wrong, doesn't deserve to be crucified. But at this time, the crowd is getting a little upset. They're getting a little uneasy, and Pilate already doesn't have a great relationship with the Jews, so he thinks in order to appease the crowd, he will have Jesus flogged which is a pretty serious thing. We heard a little bit last week, but flogging was 39 lashes. 40, they said, would kill a man. And it was by two very skilled men, two skilled soldiers who were experts in flogging. And what they would do is they would take the criminal, the one who was accused, and they would take his arms and they would tie him as high as they could above his head, stretching out his body so that it is tight and that the whips could easily rip through his skin. They'd take a cat of nine tails, and at the end of these would be metal balls. They would also be pieces of bone that were tied to the end of these leather straps, and they would both take turns swinging at the victim, hitting them across the back, coming around the front, and reaching across the chest and the abdomen. It was a terrible, horrible thing. And after that was all done... They put Jesus in a purple robe and a crown of thorns so that they could openly mock him. Purple was the color of royalty. They mockingly said, you are a royal king. And their crown of thorns that was placed on his head was beaten down onto his head with a club. Now, the, some of the other gospels tell us that the whole battalion of the, of the Roman soldiers came into Pilate's headquarters at this time, and they all joined in. They all wanted an opportunity to openly mock Jesus. And then they smacked him in the face. The one that created man with, by forming them with his hands was now using his hands to smack the creator. They mocked him. They said, they said, hail, king of the Jews, which wasn't a compliment at all. Matthew tells us in chapter 5, Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meek does not mean weak. It means controlled strength. So Jesus is living out here what he was preaching in Matthew chapter 5. 
We know that Jesus could have easily put a stop to all of this. Last week, we saw just a chapter before this, when all the soldiers come to gather him at the Garden of Gethsemane, they said, Who, where is Jesus? And he says, I am. And boom, all of them are laying flat on their backs from two words from Jesus. And he could have easily done this. He had the authority to do this, but he doesn't say a word and doesn't stop them. Jesus models for us in this selfless act act that true strength is not how much you can lift or how much you can bench, but how much power you have and you're able to harness it. You're able to control it. This is the most selfless act, right? I mean, we as humans, we can only be pushed so far, can't we? I mean, we think about ourselves being pretty patient people sometimes, a few of us, but there is a limit where we reach a breaking point when we're mocked, that we start to fight back and retaliate. Jesus was spat upon right in the face. If that happened to one of us, I don't think we would sit by and submit to this kind of ridicule, this kind of mocking. And they used their human words. And Jesus was a human. He felt these words. He felt every word they said. I remember one time I was falsely accused of scratching and denting someone's car. And these people came up to me and they were very angry and they said, why don't you just own up to it? You did it. And I just felt this sense of, oh. And I had this, I had to defend myself. I've been wrongfully accused. I had to stick up for myself and let him know. And I did so in not a godly way, but here is Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. And he's being beaten and mocked on our behalf. He doesn't say a word. Peter says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. But this was not enough for the Jewish leaders to see him mocked and flogged. They wanted more than that. They wanted Jesus dead and out of here. But interestingly, it wasn't enough for God the Father either. God the Father was not content to have Jesus just mocked, just flogged. God's intent was that Jesus would die. The Father had plans to crush the Son and to make him a sacrifice for sin. Because of his holiness, God desired to rescue humanity. And before the foundation of the world, he had a plan to do just that with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. They were going to have Jesus die in order that we could be saved. And John unpacks this in the crucifixion account, which brings us to our our second factor, and that is, This is the greatest act in history because it's the most planned act in history. It's the most planned act in history. His sufferings fulfilled prophecy. That's why. Now, God lays out everything. He ordains everything. So when I say that this is the most planned act in history, I'm talking about there are so many prophecies that lead up to God's death, Jesus' death, that find their fulfillment in the cross. This has always been God's plan. Look at verse 17. 
So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate asked, What I have written, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, as one as one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now imagine this for just a moment. Imagine here is Jesus, who everyone thought was to be the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that they thought he would be when they saw him hanging on a cross. They thought that everything was done, all hope was gone. Jesus was dying a criminal's death. They were not allowed to crucify a Roman citizen because it was too cruel of an execution. Only those to be crucified were the drags and the thugs of the society, the criminals and treasons of Rome. And it seems like uh, all this, that the, the Jewish authorities were victorious, the devil had won, all hope was gone. But here's the deal. God was bringing about his sovereign plan the whole time. Even when it seemed like God wasn't in control, he was. And he shows some 900 years before how all of these prophecies are made about Jesus and his death. And really, John doesn't focus a lot on the sufferings of Jesus. He focuses more on what Jesus accomplished in his death and more of who he was. And he tells us about this seamless tunic. The criminals would have been stripped naked, and the four soldiers that were over their execution would divide up their garments. One of them took the shoes, one of them took the cloak, but underneath was a tunic that Jesus wore that was, seemed to be really nice in all one seam. Now, this isn't just like a random part of John's gospel that's in here. It's on purpose for the specific reason of showing that this was God's plan. Here's what the psalmist David, King David, who Jesus would come from, says in Psalm chapter 22. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So Jesus, David says, this is what they're going to do for the garments of Jesus. They're going to roll the dice to see who gets to take them home. And then John goes on even more to describe all the things that Jesus did in his death alone to fulfill the scripture. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour, sour wine stood there. That's what the soldiers would have drank. And they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Why does John say that this happened? What it was to fulfill scripture. And again, we go back to Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And after the death of Jesus, John goes on to explain this further as he records this in verse 36. He says, For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They'll look on him whom they have pierced. Now, Jesus was crucified during the Passover feast. Now, this was not a coincidence, it was a divine act of God that this was supposed to happen. Because God was showing that all the sacrifices, all those people that came from all over to sacrifice and sacrifice lambs to God was a picture of what Jesus was doing, bringing an end to the sacrificial system and that he himself was the one who was to be sacrificed once and for all time. Now, they were told in the book of Exodus exactly how they were to prepare the lamb at the Passover. And one of the things that they were told was you're not supposed to break any of the bones. And so John is not just telling us this random fact that, that Jesus had none of his bones broken, which is strange in itself because everybody who was crucified had their bones broken. That's initially, that's eventually how they killed him, but Jesus didn't. Why? to show that he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. John had already said that, look, the lamb of God who takes away sin. So the Old Testament is moving towards this. All the scriptures culminate in the cross of Christ. That's why in verse 37 it says, and again, another scripture says, the look on him whom they have pierced. John again is quoting Zechariah 12 verse 10. When they look on him, the one they pierced, they shall mourn for him. John is saying everything is pointing either to this in the Old Testament or pointing back to it in the New Testament. The climax of the Bible is found in the cross of Christ. This has been God's plan all along to save humanity. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's going to wow us just a little bit more. And this third factor that makes this the greatest act in history is that this is the most caring act in history. Because in his darkest moment, Jesus is thinking about others. Now, I've read through the Gospel of John a lot on my own. And every time that I read this portion, I'm always stopped and I'm in awe and I'm moved at what Jesus does here. It's the most caring act in history. Look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now just picture this. John is the only one who's left of the apostles. He's the only one that didn't flee. And he's standing close enough to Jesus to hear him speak. 
Now Jesus looks down from the cross and he sees John. And then he sees his mother Mary standing next to him. And he can't even motion or point to John or anything because he's got nails in his hands and in his feet. Perhaps he he nods his head towards him and he says, John, and he's pushing up on his, on his, his nailed feet because it's the only way he can talk to breathe. He's gasping for air. And he says, John, from now on, you're going to take care of my mom. How are you in your trials? How are we when we are going through a hard time? Some of us can't even handle a cold. We're always thinking about, I've earned this. Man, if you see what, what I'm going through, I have the right to think about myself. If anybody had the right to think about himself, it was Jesus in this moment. But he cares so much that he's thinking about the care of his own mother and not his own cares at this time. Isn't it amazing how much compassion Jesus has? And he looks down on you with love and compassion, and he wants to shepherd you. He says that we're like lost sheep that are harassed, and he wants to come And he wants to show us the way and give us his great love. Lastly, we see John shows us that the cross is the greatest act in history. All this comes together. It really is the greatest act in history because in his death, he provided salvation for all who would believe. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus lets out a loud cry of triumph. I've done it. Everything that I've come to do, I'm not leaving anything unfinished. The prophecies about my birth fulfilled. My baptism fulfilled. The exorcisms when I casted out demons fulfilled. The healings fulfilled. The teachings fulfilled. The rejection of the Messiah fulfilled. Living a perfect life for 33 years fulfilled. And he says, I fulfilled everything on the cross. There's nothing left for me to do. It's all finished. And because of this, Because this is true, Jesus is now able to bear the sins of humanity as our substitute. The scriptures say the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter says that he bore in his body our sins on the tree. That is past, present, future sins, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning his bloodstained brow, all of Brad Posley's lust, all of Brad Posley's bitterness, all of his greed, his past, his present, his future sins were all laid upon Jesus. And because of that, because our sins were laid upon Christ, he then became the bearer of God's wrath in the place of humanity. Here's what happened. When Jesus is said to be the propitiation for our sins, that means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So when all the sins of humanity were placed on Jesus, all the stored-up anger that God had over sin because of his, his righteousness and his holiness, the wrath that he had towards you was then turned away from you and placed and directed towards Jesus. 
and all of God's holy wrath was given to him and Jesus endured it all. And in that moment, Jesus experienced hell. He experienced hell for you as he was separated from God, as he was abandoned by the Father that he had a relationship with for all eternity. He didn't have it in that moment. He was abandoned and experienced divine rejection so that you and I who would believe in faith would never have to. Eric Mason says, in six hours, Jesus did what we would have to do eternity for eternity in hell. He bore all the wrath. And then at the end, Jesus says, it's finished. God is satisfied. There's no more wrath that remains. So maybe you're wondering, what, what, is there anything that I have to do? Maybe I can help God. No. There's nothing that you can do. The wrath is gone. And so as we come to this table, the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that it is finished. God has provided forgiveness of sins through his death on, his, on the cross, the greatest act in history. Because he perfectly lived a perfect life, he was able to fulfill the law and because he was perfect, he was the perfect sacrifice that was able to die on behalf of humanity. So the bread that we take represents Jesus' perfect life. And that qualified him for the juice that we partake in to be able to uh, die in our place and have God accept his sacrifice. So as we take this, there's nothing that brings salvation through taking these elements. But it is a very serious time of examining ourselves being grateful to Christ for what he's done and experiencing uh, and participating with him. So it'll be a little bit different tonight than we normally do. As you see around us here in the room, there are different stations, one here and then five others around the room. We would invite you after I pray in just a moment to uh, get up out of your seat, find the station that's closest to you. You don't all have to go at one time. There's gonna be plenty of time. You can wait. You can get up at any point during the, what you'll see on the screen here. Grab the elements, bring them back to your chair. Have some time of reflection. Talk to the Lord if you truly are born again. And then partake at your whatever you feel led to do. And then we'll let you know what's going on from there. So let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for what you've accomplished for us. The greatest act in history. You were beaten and mocked, bruised on our behalf. You did so in such a caring way as you even cared about those that were around at the time, not thinking of yourself, wanting to please your Father. God, you bore our sins in your body and you bore God's wrath so that nothing remains. It is finished. We thank you and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the beginning. He is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the majesty of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hands, bleeding side is by. 
Let's stand together and read responsively from God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
of John's letter, what it's really all about, what he's pointing to when it comes to the cross. Here's what he says in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and all at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also, here's why, that you may believe. John is saying, listen, I was so close to Jesus, he was speaking to me on the cross. I am a reliable eyewitness. I gave you all these proofs about who Jesus is and what he's done and the prophecies he's fulfilled. Not so you say, John, wow, those are really neat. No, for the purpose of you believing. This is for you, believer, the one that's struggling, the one that's having doubts, the one who's wondering what's going on with my life. John says, believe. Believe in who Jesus says he is. Believe that he did exactly what he says he will do. This is for you who's on the outside looking in right now, and you're wondering about all these things. Could it be that there is someone who loves me enough to sacrifice their own life for me? It's true, and he's calling you to believe him. Jesus Christ, he is the greatest. He has no rival. He has no equal, and the cross of Christ is the greatest act in history.
What a powerful name indeed. Thank you so much for coming to this Good Friday service, and thank you, Brad, for taking us to the cross. All of those of you who quoted the Word of God, let's thank the praise band for a wonderful time of singing and worship. And as Brad reminded us at the end, John's purpose and throughout his gospel is that we might believe. Brad also reminded us at the very beginning, when you came in, that we're talking about a story that most of us, if not all of us, we already know the addendum. We, know, we already know the end, right? We know what's going to happen on Sunday, right? But they didn't. And some of us don't know. We don't know what's going on. There's all kinds of confusion in your life. That's when we still must believe. We still must trust. We still must believe in our sovereign God. Amen? Who's got, who's got the whole thing under control, as Brad reminded us tonight. God bless you on this Good Friday. Love to see you back on Sunday. Things get started at 7.30. The services are the same. 8, 9.30, and 11. 7.30 as we begin to serve uh, our little refreshments in the coffee go. Love to see you. God bless you. Have a happy Good Friday, and we'll hope to see you on Sunday.